We do not like the idea of having to start over. If we've poured our time and resources and energy and emotions into something only to have to do it again, it can feel like suffering. This is often the undercurrent when we're talking about seasons of loss, whether it's a loss of a job or a relationship or money or dreams. In addition to the loss, we are keenly aware that we don't have the energy to do it all again. We don't like starting over, and yet so often, that's precisely where we find ourselves. So how do we navigate suffering when we dread the idea of starting again? This is the theme that presented itself as Jonathan and I talked. Jonathan has navigated several painful seasons, and it could feel so daunting to him when he realized he was starting over again and again and again. And yet what we discover is it's in that starting over that he came to know God more deeply, himself more deeply, and the invitations that God was giving him. After all, so much of what we try to hold on to here in our human lives, we can't take with us into eternity. So how might things change if our fear of starting over shifts into an anticipation of what God is about to do? You're listening to episode 155 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for this opportunity for Jonathan and I to connect from thousands of miles apart, that you have created the way for us to do this, created the space for us to do this in the time. And so we want to give this back to you. We pray that you would guide our conversation. We pray that if there's anything that we're bringing to the table, we want to just submit that to you. So we pray that, yeah, the Spirit would lead this time, not just so that we could have a good conversation, but so that you could be glorified and we can come to know you more deeply through it. And so... We thank you in advance for how we believe you will work, and we just look forward to seeing that in action. I was praying in holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jonathan, I am really excited about our conversation. And before we jump in, for those that are listening, what would you want them to know about who you are? Let's see here. I like saying like I'm a husband first, then I'm a father, and then I am whatever I do as a profession. And it's kind of in that order because very often, I suppose, there's a tendency or a temptation to want to identify ourselves by what we do professionally. But I think about the wonderful human relations that I'm blessed to have in my life. And I think those come first and foremost. And of course, before that, I guess that, that I am indeed a Christian and I do believe in God. Mm-hmm. We should probably put that in, but I suppose I, <laughs> I accepted that as just a default or a right. given. But <laughs> yeah. And I know just from the little, little, little bit that I know about you, there's been a number of things that you've experienced in life, that you've navigated in life. Mm. that could be episodes in and of themselves in this series focused (laughs) on sitting and suffering. And so as you've been thinking about this conversation and praying about it, what's God been bringing to your heart? Just to be open and honest about the lived reality of the experience. Because I still feel that maybe out there, there's some impressions about God as almost like a fairy godfather, in a sense, Mm. that life will be made easy and the health, wealth, prosperity, all that kind of thing. In reality, that's not actually what we're promised. Well, promise will be taken care of, but what that looks like in reality is often very different than maybe we might picture it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you just shared is true, but I know for you, it's not just something you read in a book. Mm -hmm. This is gained experience from life. So tell me about some of what you've gone through that's led you to come to that understanding. You know, I was raised in a Christian home, but my parents... They always said that like this has to be your choice, ultimately. Mm. We can't choose this for you. We would choose it, but we can't choose it for you. 
And so I appreciated that they set a standard for me. They lived an example for me, but they said, you have to ultimately choose this for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I would say probably, you know, maybe when I was 14, so mid-teens, I kind of made a decision that, yeah, I do want to serve God. I don't really know what that looks like, but I, I think I do want to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I was blessed with a pretty good brain and uh, I really can't take the credit. I got it free of charge. <laughs> but I've got a really great memory. My dad has like an encyclopedic memory. My mom's very, very creative. And so I have this really pretty gifted brain. And for most of my life, especially as a kid, actually, I didn't really realize that I saw the world a little bit differently than other people. Mm-hmm. I've got a very quick thinking brain and whatnot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was often a real pain for my brother to play games and things like that with me because my brain just processes things faster. But I didn't really realize that it was a gift. Actually, I went through most of my life kind of hiding that. Mm-hmm. Because I'd learned that if people found this out about me, that they would treat me differently or they might not like me and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. But I shared that because it was like, I would call myself a cerebral Christian for a good portion of that. Mm. Maybe the first 10 to 15 years of me sort of consciously trying to serve God. So I could quote scripture, I could quote verses, I could say things that sounded really good. Mm-hmm. And when life was good, I mean, it was easy to think that God was like directing my life. You know, I mean, there were some challenging times and whatnot, but I mean, life was pretty good. I grew up in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, a first world country. My parents are married and they're still married like 43 years later. Mm. I've got a great relationship with my brother. You know, I've got an amazing wife who is very devoted to me. And so, you know, it was kind of easy to think that, well, God has obviously blessed me and, and, and so on, and he must be guiding my life and so on. But none of that had really been truly put to the test, mm-hmm. you know, small trials here and there, but nothing really put to the test. And so when I was 29, my wife and I were just traveling around the world kind of as an adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we packed up all our stuff. I'd been in the Navy for about six years decided that it really, to serve God and to be married and to be in the Navy, those three didn't really mesh. Mm. And so I made the decision to leave. My wife's from Australia. And yeah, I thought she'd come halfway around the world to be with me. And I was gone all the time. And just a very ungodly environment (laughs) by and large. Mm. So it just wasn't that helpful for the space that I was in. Then we ended up traveling around the world. Uh, We ended up finding ourselves in South Africa. It started with meeting a South African gentleman when we were living in Mexico who then came to Poland when we were living in Poland and then invited us down to South Africa to kind of be a part of what his family was doing down there. But down there, I went through like a violent trauma where I was attacked Mm -hmm. and nearly beaten to death. And in that experience, what I recall, like I I got a little, just the tiniest little taste of hell. I try to say the tiniest little taste because hell is for eternity. I only got like a little taste of it. But, you know, it was nighttime. It was dark. I was being attacked. I was screaming for help. Nobody heard me. Mm-hmm. So we were out on a nature reserve. It's nighttime. Everyone's over in the dining hall eating, having a good time, whatever. I'd just been walking back to my cabin by myself. It's kind of set in the trees. And so I was far enough away that people couldn't hear me. Mm-hmm. But I could see in the distance. I could see the lights of the building and all this kind of stuff. But they can't hear me hollering for help mm-hmm. while I'm being attacked and trying to fight for my life. In that moment, I remember having this thought like, I can't die tonight. Because if I die, I'm not confident that I'd be saved. Mm-hmm. Anyways, God spared me that experience. And I mean, I've shared many times before the story of the experience itself, but I often don't want to put the attention on physically what I went through because sometimes that diverts away from really the work that that experience did. Mm. Obviously, it shook me to my core because I was 29 years old and I was probably one hit across the head away from being dead. Mm. So God spared me that experience. So now I had to reconsider my relationship with God because I felt like the verse, I think it was to Belshazzar, if I have it right, I've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Mm. And it was like, God had to put me in that place for me to to actually reach me and for me to realize that you're a cerebral Christian. You're really smart. You can quote the Bible. You can say all the right things. Mm -hmm. You go through a lot of the good actions and whatnot, but you still haven't really yielded your heart to me. Mm. Yeah. 
And so I imagine, you know, you had this traumatic experience, which in and of itself can stay with you for a while, can like cause all kinds of thoughts, healthy and unhealthy to go through your mind. And then you had this spiritual element Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I was almost beaten to death, but I'm actually thinking more about my eternal life versus my physical life. Mm -hmm. And when we hear this from a distance and we hear someone else talking about it, we can think through, well, All you have to do is put these two pieces together and you're good. But I imagine for you, it wasn't just that click. So how did you navigate that space of going from this brief glimpse of hell to where you are now of I have a deeper and Mm -hmm. deepening understanding of God and who I am in that? Yeah, really. It sounds cliche to say, but really good question. Very insightful because you're right. We might think that it was a a lightning bolt from heaven or something like that Mm -hmm. or, or a brick across the head. But we're still humans in this lived human experience, and we still have a human brain, and it takes time to sort of work through and process some of these things. And so, yeah, there was the initial shock and trauma of kind of what I'd been through. Mm-hmm. And then sort of this almost like a loss of a sense of identity, because, you know, I thought I was a good Christian, so to speak, and what I was was shown to me. And so now I kind of go through this period of like, well, have I really been serving God for all these years or not? Mm-hmm. Like, was it just kind of going through the motions because I felt like it was the right thing to do? So it almost felt like I had to start from zero. Mm. <laughs> and I don't want to say I had to relearn the scriptures and things because I'd been reading them for a number of years by this point. But yeah, it kind of started over again and be like, what is this really about? Mm-hmm. And along the way, of course, I had to go through, like I said, processing all of these things. One of the first things surprising to me when I look back, but one of the first things I started processing about, oh, maybe like four or five months after the experience was to forgive the men who did that to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there was this really powerful lesson in forgiveness because, again, you might think, well, I made the decision to forgive them and ta-da, they're forgiven and all is good. But <laughs> true forgiveness sometimes isn't quite that simple. Mm-hmm. So I had to ask, well, how do I forgive men who tried to kill me and who would do it again, presented the opportunity? And it wasn't because they knew me. I was just a random white guy, but they would do it again. So how do I forgive them? Mm. It started with just asking the question, what happened to them? because every one of them was born like just an innocent baby at some point in time. What happened in their path in life that took them to the place where in this very moment in time, where they felt the need to attack me and try to kill me? Mm -hmm. And of course, I don't have the answers to that. But just this thought that, you know, I don't think we're born murderers. Mm -hmm. And so something happened to them. So trying to cultivate a sense of compassion for them. And, you know, it's not about maybe absolving them from necessarily what they did. That's between them and God. You know, whether or not they acknowledge God is between them and God. But taking it out of my hands. So I didn't want to carry this anger with me, this, man, I hope God smites you. Mm -hmm, (laughs) You know, mm -hmm. real forgiveness is not just saying like, I forgive you, but I hope God smites you. (laughs) It's saying that I hope God has mercy on you because I don't know what happened to you that got you to this place where this is what you were doing. Yeah but only God can truly know your heart. Mm-hmm. It was very freeing and liberating. And so I started to learn a little bit about forgiveness and you know the forgiveness that we experience because Jesus was a sacrifice for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just for those who care to know him or want to worship him or whatnot, but for those who not only reject him, but those who reject him and curse his name and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, It was a, a very visceral, in one sense, lesson in what true, deep, and meaningful forgiveness actually is. Mm. And so I started to learn more about God in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic forgive them and they know not what they do. What Jesus recognized is they functionally knew what they were doing, <laughs> but they didn't know the full extent of what they were doing, the depth of what they were doing. And if we say we're Christ followers, then we should follow Jesus's way of thinking about people, which is 
they may not understand the full extent when somebody does a wrong. Mm -hmm. The default for us will be to villainize because that makes us feel better or makes us feel justified or makes us feel whatever. It's actually risky for us to, as someone put it, like give someone a pass. Like it feels risky because it's like you said, if they saw me again, they might do it again. (laughs) Right. But to understand that there is somebody made in the image of God, that's a part of it. And then if we're really honest and humble, then we could get to the point where we could say, if I were in the same situation, would I have done differently? Mm-hmm. If I had been born in the same circumstances or experienced the same trauma, could I actually say with full confidence, I wouldn't make such decisions? And if we're really honest, we'd be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, I don't understand what I do because what I hate to do, I do. And what I need to do, I don't. Like <laughs> We're all carrying this brokenness. But really, and this is what I think is powerful about what you're saying, and it actually resonates with something I heard earlier. What you're talking about is growing in our ability to see beyond ourself and beyond our own understanding. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about how when you had this realization of, oh my goodness, am I really following Christ? Am I really a believer? And you said, it's almost like I had to relearn scripture. And that felt weird to say because it's like, well, I knew scripture, but It made me think of one way we could think about that is, have you seen the movie Sixth Sense? Yeah, many years ago, yeah. Okay, so spoiler for anybody listening, if you haven't seen Sixth Sense, it's been decades, so it's on you. So you watch this movie, and it seems to be this movie about this kid who can see ghosts and this guy, this counselor who is helping him through that, right? Mm -hmm. And so you watch the whole movie from that premise, and you think you understand the movie, and you're following along all the way up to the last moment where suddenly the twist is revealed. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, that he was one of these ghosts that these kids could see. And suddenly you realize, I thought I understood the movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand it at all. Yeah, yeah. Now you have this new realization. And so the second time you watch it, you're watching the exact same movie, but in a completely different way, because you know something now that you didn't know then. So you're watching the same scene that before was just a write-off scene. Oh, they're all in the kitchen and there's a conversation. Sure, that's fine. You look at it later, like, oh my goodness, they're on the kitchen, but the mom can't see Bruce Willis, right? It's like, you suddenly see and understand the movie in a new way. And I think that's what we see with scripture that, you know, we could, to the best of our ability and with good intentions, get into the Bible for a good part of our life. But then we have a moment like you experienced where our faith is actually put to the test or put in the spotlight. And suddenly we realize that we don't actually know all of what we think. But this is the beautiful thing. Peter is a great example of someone who thought he was going about things the right way. Then he had that pivotal moment of denying Jesus. And suddenly he's having the same questions as you. Was I actually following him? Like, did I actually love him? I thought I did, but if I really loved him, wouldn't I have stayed? And what does that mean? But then you have Jesus who's looking at him with love and saying, come on, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Like he Mm. brings this restoration because he knew. He knew all along that you loved him, (laughs) but he also knew that you didn't really understand what that love was. And Mm. so then you've been on this journey. Now, here's the hard thing about suffering it's not one-off things. So <laughs> yeah. you have this experience. Yeah. You're processing through what does this mean? You're starting to explore your relationship with God more deeply. But then you have other moments of suffering that happen along the way. Yeah, so what was yeah. that like? It was a lot easier, surprisingly, to forgive the men who did that to me than to turn my attention to myself and even mm. my relationship to myself. Because there's still the very human element of this experience. And I fell into like food addiction and binge eating as a way of kind of coping with the trauma and what had happened to me. 
I look back in hindsight because of the work that I do now professionally, partly as a result of what I've been through mm -hmm. and I can understand it now. But back then it didn't make sense to me. I call it now living in the gap between what we know and what we do. Why am I doing these things? Why do these sort of uncontrollable urges take over? Why doesn't God just help me get past this? Why doesn't he just, you know, give me the power to overcome this? Why do I feel like I'm in the grips of this and I can't seem to break free from it? You know, so there's a lot of shame, a lot of really like self-loathing and self-hatred mm. because I couldn't seem to conquer this. And this went on for a number of years because, I mean, through all this, of course, I'm trying to live my life. I'm trying to be married. Mm. I'm trying to run a business. I'm trying to do all these other things while kind of wrestling with this secret, shameful struggle that really wasn't all that secret because, I mean, when you're a binge eating food addict, you kind of wear your <laughs> wear your truth on your body. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it, and it's hard unless someone's been through this kind of experience to picture almost like I had like a deluded view of myself because I didn't want to see myself as I actually was mm. the actual physical state or condition that I was in because I felt such deep shame around that, that it sort of created this image in my head that it's not so bad. And it's just a few incidents here and there and, and so on and so forth. But then at one point back in about 2017, I was just purchasing some life insurance or some additional life insurance and I'd go through a physical, mm. you know, my blood pressure was pretty high. And my heart rate was quite high because I was just carrying a lot of weight and it was really hard on my body. Insurance companies are, are brutal mm -hmm. because they're just looking at how likely are you to die and how, you know, how likely are you to die sooner. And that's going to calculate how you're just a number. Yeah. But I couldn't hide from the physical reality of the situation. And I realized like, I've got to get some help because I've been trying to solve this on my own. I've been too proud to like reach out for help. And even maybe I was to some degree separating like my spiritual life from my sort of physical and natural life. But finally I, I reached out for help mm -hmm. and, and the coach that I ended up working with, I don't, I don't even know if he was a Christian or not because that never really came up in conversation. But the piece that he helped shed a light on for me was what does compassion actually look like? So that was like the next missing piece in my journey was understanding what real compassion is. Most of my life I'd misunderstood it. I thought it as some sort of like weakness and sort of letting people get away with stuff because we felt sorry for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that's not the case. That's not what compassion actually is. Compassion is not enabling unhelpful behaviors. I think about Jesus and how he worked with the woman who was caught in adultery. You know, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. Like, don't continue in this pattern of behavior that's destroying you. This coach that I was working with, and I was probably judging myself way more harshly than he was. So in my head, I was projecting and assuming that he was probably seeing me the way that I see myself. That now in this sort of self-hating relationship and mired in shame and guilt for all of my self-destructive behaviors... But he was actually seeing something different. Mm. He was seeing, oh, there's some potential here. I see something in you. And I tried to push him away and I tried to make him give up on me <laughs> and tried to convince him that I was a failure and that we were never going to succeed and, and, and so on. But he refused to give up on me because he saw something in me mm -hmm. and he showed me compassion. And so I think about it like giving us space to kind of wrestle with our demons in the light without judgment necessarily mm -hmm. or without discompassionate judgment. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I understand why you're doing these things. And maybe you don't fully understand, but I do. You know, he's a very experienced coach. And so he understood why I was doing these things. So he saw that I was more than my behavior. Mm -hmm. Here's why you're doing this. And he helped me to understand why I was doing it. It wasn't just that I was this horrible piece of garbage human being, mm -hmm. but there was real reasons why I was struggling with this. And so then began the journey of, well, what does self-compassion look like? Because I was maybe, I was afraid to show myself that. I was like, well, what happens if I show myself compassion? Am I just going to, I don't know, turn into a mental marshmallow or something like that? Or, <laughs> you know, had all these fears around it. And yet it was the piece that I needed to really help guide me through to losing a significant amount of weight and regaining my health. Yeah. When I know part of your journey too, alongside this, is working through anxiety, mm, which mm. is something that a lot of people deal with. Yeah. A lot of people know that they deal with it. A lot of people are dealing with it and don't have a name for it. 
what was that part? Because I know it's pretty hefty. <laughs> yeah. So I was also not sleeping very well. And many of these years while I was trying to lose weight, I was also using various fat burners, which are essentially various stimulant cocktails and, and whatnot. Mm. And in sort of my self-loathing state, it was like, I just have to push myself harder, just push harder, push harder. My body's not responding. Okay, push harder, train harder, spend more time in the gym. So, Because I was going to the gym and I was just getting angry and angry at my body because mm. it wasn't responding the way that I thought it should. And my response to it was to try to push harder. Well, ultimately, you can only push your nervous system so hard before it starts to pull a fire alarm mm. and go, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep redlining your nervous system like this, sleeping five hours a night, trying to go to the gym two hours a day, working 14 hours a day, surviving on caffeine and various other stimulants to keep you going. You can't keep doing this. And I started having panic attacks. And the first time it happened, I didn't really understand what was taking place. I woke up in the middle of the night and my heart was pounding out of my chest. And mm. part of my brain was screaming, you're going to die. Like you have to call 911, you're going to die. And the other part was like, this doesn't make sense. You were just lying in bed with your wife beside you, like sleeping peacefully and safely, like there's nothing going on here. And it probably lasted for about 40, 45 minutes. Me just sitting on my couch mm. in the middle of the night with my heart pounding out of my chest going like, what is happening? It took me a while to sort of connect the dots that this was anxiety. And so there's kind of two parts to this. Because so anxiety is like redlining your nervous system, like overheating an engine. Mm. And when that takes place, that engine then has to have a period of time of like cooling down to get back to normal. With the nervous system, it's actually like falling into a depression. And so I would go through these anxious episodes and then I would fall into this very, very apathetic, depressed state mm. where I just couldn't feel anything. I, could, I couldn't care about anything. And my long-suffering wife, who's been with me through all of this, mm -hmm. would try to reach me and try to, you know, but I just, I couldn't feel anything because my nervous system had been so burnt out. It would sort of rebound. I would start to feel good again, but then it would overshoot things again. And it was this up and down cycle. Sometimes I would kneel down to pray and it would feel like I was staring into this empty, like endless black. Mm -hmm. And it's a really disconcerting and terrifying thing. And, and wondering, well, where is God in this now? Mm -hmm. All I want is peace. I, I just want peace. And I can't find it. Like what's happening here? Why am I going through this? Mm -hmm. You know, because sometimes we could think about maybe the previous experience that I had and think, okay, well, that was the piece that I needed for like God to finish his work in me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, no, that was one piece. Mm -hmm. There's more work. And so, and obviously I, I got some help, some counseling and some other help as well. Thankfully, I don't have to use a medication and that's nothing against people who do. We're physical beings in a physical world. Again, I, I think I had to spend some time in that space to really appreciate, well, what does peace feel like? Mm -hmm. Because what would happen is in all of this sort of turmoil, there would be these moments of like peace and rest. Mm. And I really started to appreciate those. One of the hardest things about anxiety is the fear of like, when's the next episode coming? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Where will I be when it strikes? And we start to worry about these things as well. And so I, I came to appreciate just the moments of peace in all of this. Mm -hmm. And so going through the experience, it really, again, highlighted for me what peace is like. And it's not as though life is blissful and everything's going great. It's like in these really, really difficult experiences, there can still be a reassuring presence. Not that necessarily you're guaranteed to survive whatever you're going through, but like whatever it is you're going through, you're not going to go through it alone. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of advice out there around how to lose weight, <laughs> how to navigate anxiety. There's some really good mm. practical tips and things like that. But based on what I know about you that you've shared already, you have recognized a spiritual element to this journey. So alongside the practical things, mm -hmm. well, actually, even more than that, 
you were doing a lot of practical things that weren't completely (laughs) getting you there. Yeah. So alongside these practical things, you came to realize there's some spiritual element. And so tell me about that piece of it where the spiritual journey ended up leading to some of the healing you were longing for, restoration you were longing for. Yeah. I don't want to say it for like starting over again, but it's like, okay, now once again, I'm in this place where I have to reevaluate my relationship with God. Mm -hmm. I have to reevaluate what this looks like. You know, the thing about the parable of the sower and the seed. Mm-hmm. And I had fallen into the third type of soil, I think it is, the thorny soil, where I was starting to be overwhelmed by the cares of life. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to cost me my spiritual health and the byproduct of it being my physical health. And so it's like, well, we now have to go through this piece of the experience where you recognize mm-hmm. that you can't work yourself to death. And for what? For trying to accumulate more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is this about? Learning that I have to, and not only I have to, but there's no need for guilt around our need for rest. God planned it that we would have rest and that we would deliberately take time for rest. We need these periods of it. I was maybe also burying myself in work to try to escape everything that I was feeling, all the turmoil and whatnot. If I could just keep myself busy, I don't have to think about mm-hmm. what it is I'm experiencing. But in order to, I don't necessarily want to say get victory over, but mm-hmm. because I don't want to diminish anyone who's experienced as such that maybe they're going to be plagued with something like this till their dying day. Right. I'm really fortunate in that after about three or four years, I was able to get my nervous system health to the point where it's more or less a non-issue. And I know how to manage and navigate it now. Yeah. I know how not to work myself to death and so on. But just to get to this place where I recognize the importance of rest now, mm-hmm. there's a reason that God made us in this capacity as well. You need rest Mm -hmm. and you don't need to feel guilty about rest. It doesn't diminish you as a man or as a masculine figure or as a provider or anything like that when you need rest. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really important that you take this time and you can't give up or sacrifice your spiritual life to try to accumulate more naturally and expect to be healthy spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of shame, it's funny. I wrote down shame because it's been this recurring theme, right? Like mm-hmm. from the beating and you're like feeling shame around, oh man, was I really a Christian? Mm-hmm. To when this weight piece came in and this self-doubt and and even the anxiety, the shame of like, wow, am I doing this right way? Like all these things. But it's interesting. I thought maybe this is where the theme of this conversation is going to go. But this other idea that's popped up a few times is this idea of starting over again. And our desire to not do that. Mm. <laughs> like this prospect of, oh, I've been a Christian all my life, but now I've got to rethink this. Oh man, I already went through a rethink as you say, you mean I might be getting it wrong again? Like what? And it made me think of uh, <laughs> my family and I watch this show called Lego Masters. Okay, The kids love it. And it's basically a bunch of people building Lego things, right? right yeah, yeah. But there's this moment that happens in these type of shows, whether it's a Lego show or a bake-off where a team is working on something and they get to a point where they realize the way we're doing this isn't going to work. Mm. And they have this pivotal moment where they're aware that they've spent hours doing it this way. They don't want to undo all their work, but to continue in this direction is going to be fruitless. Mm-hmm. You know, the judges have already come over and saying, well, eh, that's not really a good way of doing it. So it's like, are we going to just continue in the wrong direction mm-hmm. or are we going to scrap everything we've done and start fresh? And it's this heavy, daunting moment because it feels like such a waste. It feels like I don't even know how to capture it. It's just we just don't want it. And when we think <laughs> yeah. about our spiritual lives, it's like, man, a decade, two decades, three decades. What was the whole point? But what I love is that we're basing that off of our understanding of time Mm. and value and so forth. Meanwhile, Jesus knows he had interactions with people that in an instant 
there is value to their lives. The thief on the cross, yeah. right? Like his whole life was not Jesus centric, not God centric, but in a moment value was brought to his existence. Mm -hmm. So even if we lose time, we lose efforts, we lose decades, the value of what Jesus can do when we do die to self, we give up everything. Like, cause that's what we're talking about, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. this is one of the versions of dying to self. Mm. And so how have you found peace in this space of accepting the reality of dying to self, accepting the reality of, oh, I'm going to have to undo this, or I'm going to have to relearn that and finding the joy and the value that Jesus brings from this new life. Well, there's another experience that I went through in my natural life that probably parallels what you were describing. Mm. In amidst all of these other struggles, I also went through a business failure mm. where I did indeed lose everything. <laughs> and not only did I lose everything, I had a business partner who I thought was a Christian as well. And I thought he was one of my closest friends. Mm -hmm. And it turns out he had a double life and this person was not the person who I thought they were. Mm. So it was like a betrayal. It was more than just like a random attack. And I'd spent a number of years trying to build up this business with this promise of something and what I thought I was building up only to have it all come crashing down and just be left with a mountain of debt and thinking, well, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. Here I thought I was building something. I was maybe building an asset for our future. And, you know, this was going to turn into something like our life savings or retirement plan or something like that only to have it all come crashing down. And then to try to go home to my wife to explain all this sacrifice of time away from you that I've spent pouring into this business. And mm. it's all amounted to nothing. And well, negative actually, because yeah. now I just have a mountain of debt, not an immediate path to sort of dig our way out. And so if we want to talk about, you know, test of faith, it's like, okay, well, now do you have faith in God? When that thing that you were putting your trust in, the thing that you thought you were building, this material wealth you were trying to accumulate, so you could put your trust in that, that this was going to secure your future, that was taken away as well. Mm. And so now we have to start over again. And forgiveness looks a little bit different when it's someone who you thought was a brother in Christ and a mm -hmm. trusted friend, and mm -hmm. then there was this betrayal. And most people don't know about it to this day. They don't know the individual. They don't know what took place. And I won't reveal it because I don't think it's necessary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to have to go through that humbling experience again where it's like, okay, what's the lesson in this one? But it was like, whatever we try to like build and accumulate in this life can, and at some point will be taken away in an instant. Mm -hmm. So we think about Jesus talked about building on the sand. When the storm comes, it can't withstand it. And for some people, that storm is maybe death where they're just being swept away from time in this natural life. Mm -hmm. But also then in that, like, you know, a different kind of rock bottom. It's like, well, I actually have nothing left of myself that I can put faith in because here I thought I was using like my intellect and my business savvy and mm. all these other things, all these skills that I have to build this thing. And it turns out it amounted to nothing. So now I can't even put my trust in my own abilities. What do I have left to put my trust in? And the only place I can place my trust and my faith is in God. And the only way I'm going to get out of this is by having faith in him. Mm. And so it was, again, an experience I wouldn't take out of my past. And we would look at it. And over the last few years, it's from a natural perspective, like maybe crippled us financially in a number of different ways, because being saddled with a mountain of debt and no assets, mm -hmm. it's like, oh boy, you know, but again, we had to put our faith in God and, you know, we've never starved. Mm -hmm. We've worked our way through this. And, you know, now I'm doing a type of work that I probably wouldn't have been doing had I been stuck in that business that was probably going to fail anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the pandemic probably would have crushed it True. <laughs> <laughs> to get to what we're doing. And so ultimately, how do you get through it? And it's so cliche, but it's like a moment at a time. Mm -hmm. There's this temptation when you're staring at this large problem, and I could use a parallel in my work, helping people with weight loss. Maybe they want to lose 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 pounds, like this very daunting thing that's staring at them. And if you think about the weight and the magnitude of that, 
it's going to crush you. Mm. And it's like, if you think about the, maybe the weight and the magnitude of trying to serve God for the entirety of your life, that might actually crush you. Mm-hmm. But we're not asked to do that. God hides the future from us so that we're not burdened by that, so that we have the opportunity to just live in the present moment. And it's like, if we had all the answers, there would be no need for faith. Mm-hmm. So getting comfortable with being in the space where it's like, I don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so all I can do is have faith and then realize that it didn't kill me mm-hmm. and I'm going to be okay, regardless of the outcome. Yeah. There's this beauty in accepting the reality that, like you said, there's a lot that God doesn't tell us because in our hands, we wouldn't know what to do with it or we wouldn't respond well. Mm-hmm. And accepting the reality that hard things are ahead in this world, you will have trouble. You were beaten. Jesus knew what it was to be beaten. Mm-hmm. You were betrayed by someone close to you. Jesus knew about that too, right? <laughs> you experienced this deep crippling anxiety. And I think of the Garden of Gethsemane and mm-hmm. Jesus was just feeling the weight of it so much that he's sweating blood. Jesus has been through all these things Mm. and he often knew what was ahead. But the reason that he was able to keep on moving forward, we see that in the garden as well. It was this resolve to honor his father. Mm -hmm. He was able to live into this idea of I am all in. And what he also knows is that that's a struggle for us. We have a desire to be all in sometimes, but... As you noted earlier in the conversation, there are plenty of things that can draw our attention away, Mm -hmm. that often do draw our attention away. And so it's almost this grace that God extends to us to not put it in our hands, (laughs) to make those choices, to invite us to just walk, follow, and trust. Then all we're left with is not having to discern, should I go into this situation or not? Or should I do this? It's, am I willing to trust God no matter what's ahead? Am Mm -hmm. I willing to step whatever direction he invites, even if it seems like foolishness? We're going to still stumble in that for sure, but we're going to get better. Yeah, I go back to sort of foundational experience of being attacked. Like I call it foundational experience really because it fundamentally shifted my perspective on life and God and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Maybe the temptation to think, okay, now that I've had that experience, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's like, no, 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 there's more. There's more ways that you're going to struggle. There's more things that you're going to go through. And being okay with that, I guess what that experience taught me is that even even like the most difficult, the hardest experiences, like I can get through it with the help of God. Yeah. But yeah. if I wasn't in the depth of that experience, I think about the depth of God's love as well, hitting this point of like a deep grief and a deep sense of loss, but God's love still able to reach us there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I had this other thought, you're talking about the thief on the cross. And I was thinking, you know, Jesus didn't change his natural situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was still nailed to the cross and still dying. Yeah. That wasn't changing. And had Jesus changed it, you know, restored him to off the cross and back to health and given him more life, he may not have ended up saved. Mm. And his greatest mercy was to allow him to die that day because he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. So I love that you put a light on that. Just thinking about, you know, I think the struggles made a lot harder by maybe our lack of faith or our lack of willingness to go through the hard stuff, thinking we don't have the capacity to handle it, but we're not actually asked to handle it in our own strength and our own ability. And so most of this life, it seems like we're just trying to figure out how do I put this in God's hands and let go of my need for trust and and security in myself and the natural world around me, which is all that I really know to be true at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this beautiful freeing element to there being a reality that there's something bigger than what we know. Because if it was just this world, then yeah, we better figure this out and we better get it right. And if we get it wrong, it's on us. But if there's this spiritual reality, we eventually become keenly aware that we have no power like in and of ourselves (laughs) to do that. So all we can do is trust, which then is a freeing thing, because in a way it puts the burden on God (laughs) to show up rather than on us. 
I mentioned this earlier, there's this theme that came up in an earlier conversation. It's this idea of what it looks like when we shift our focus from purely physical to recognizing the reality of the spiritual. So you said that you had this experience of nearly being murdered. But when you tell the story, you don't want to focus just on the beating Mm -hmm. and surviving that because it misses the bigger spiritual thing that happened there. And I recorded a conversation with a friend, Angela. She shared a similar sentiment. She had this really devastating break of her foot. And when she thinks back to what the past few years have been like, her mind doesn't go to the physical healing element of what is going on. It's the emotional and spiritual healing that God was doing. And so Mm -hmm. we had this invitation to stop and say, you know what? I think I see things clearly, but what if I don't? I'll put it another way. I was facilitating a community Bible study today. And we were talking about this idea of scripture talks about dreams and visions and what that looks like. And someone was saying, well, yeah, maybe in scripture it was just, you know, somebody fell asleep and they had an experience of God. And I was like, but there's other times where there is actually something there like Balaam and the donkey Mm. and there's this pass and Balaam just sees a clear pass. But the donkey's like, no, dude, there's an angel there. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we can't go forward. Like sometimes we can't see what's actually there. And the functional example of that is we could look around our room right now and be pretty confident in what we could see, but there's a lot we can't see. If you and I were in a room, I would just see you. But if I had an x-ray machine as well, I would see something through that Mm. that I couldn't see with my own eyes. Mm. If I had an infrared monitor, I could see the heat emanating from you. (laughs) I can't see that otherwise. If I had a UV light. I could see if there's specks of like blood or something on your yeah, shirt yeah. or something like that, like they do in CSI. And so yeah. we see things and there's so much that we can't see. And this invitation to understand that there is a spiritual reality is basically an invitation to say, hey, you can't trust your own eyes. Mm-hmm. So what if you trusted God's eyes <laughs> instead of yours alone? Yeah. And I think about each of these experiences bringing me to the end of myself and my own abilities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that we cannot take the credit like, oh, it's because of my own resilience right. or grit or strength or intellect that I got through this experience. It's like, well, I got brought to the end of all of those mm-hmm. to only find out God's work is just beginning. Yeah. And here I am being brought to the end of myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay there's some people that would, could we say, maybe protest that like God gets the glory and what is the nature of God if he requires the glory? But if God is the highest good, I mean, how could he point to anything else other than himself? Mm -hmm. And I have no ability to save anybody. I don't have the power to raise up a soul or cast down a soul or anything like that. And so if it did anything other than glorify God, it wouldn't actually make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's say somebody's listening and they are navigating a similar space of suffering that you navigated in any of those seasons of life. Or maybe it's this broad idea of the fear of having to start again or the shame of not getting it right the first time. If you could say something to them, what would you want to say? It's okay to be brought to the end of yourself. It's probably the most uncomfortable you might ever be. And our human mind is frightened, maybe even terrified of that prospect of being brought to the end of ourself, being shown who we are and what our limitations are Mm. and seeing ourselves as we truly are. It's the most vulnerable thing to experience, even more than being naked, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. We have to be in those moments to begin to truly understand what God is capable of in our lives. And the other side of that experience is profound spiritual growth. And it doesn't mean there won't be more of these difficult experiences down the road, but what it does is it helps us to go forward with confidence that whatever comes our way, it's not a guarantee it's going to be easier just because we've been through some hard experiences, but we know that we can get through it 
and not only get through it, because it's not just about persevering for the sake of suffering, but on the other side of it, there's a marvelous work. We don't ever want to lose sight that God is trying to accomplish a work of recreation, of spiritual recreation in us. And so that can help to give us the willingness to go through these hard experiences and the courage to not shy away, knowing that the work that's being done because of these is of eternal value. Mm, That's good. Well, let's say someone's listening and they've appreciated what you've shared. What's the best way for them to connect with you and what you're doing? Well, one, I have a podcast called Between the Before and After, Mm -hmm. and it really is about exploring people's stories of overcoming adversity. So people are welcome to have a listen to some of the stories there. The other would be freedomnutritioncoach.com. And so I work with people and maybe you would figure out that I often joke that nutrition is the cover story. Weight loss is often the proxy goal. Mm. I think it's just an entirely different experience working with me. And again, it's not really to toot my own horn. I am who I am because of what I've been through, because of what God has been able to do in my life ultimately. But yeah, freedomnutritioncoach.com. It's really about setting ourselves free from a lot of things. I love it. And as we close out, is there anything else that God's put in your heart that you feel led to share? I just think that there's a lot of, <laughs> the world is in turmoil. And maybe there's a temptation to pray that God would stop the turmoil in this world or that he would stop what we see happening. And I don't see that happening. I don't say that to be discouraging at all, but say, let's turn our attention to what really matters. Mm-hmm. We can't save this world. In fact, it's going to be burned and put away anyways. We want to be responsible stewards of what God has gifted us with. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but let's turn our attention to what really matters. And all of a sudden, these things that seem so big and scary and daunting and we feel powerless to change, it's like it doesn't really matter because it's not the big picture. Job has understandably come up often in this series, and there's an element of his story that we really haven't talked about. Now, we all know how the story ends, starting in chapter 42, verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It goes on to say, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Now, of course, it's a happy end to a hard story. And there are many conversations to be had about what's going on here. But there's a conversation that's relevant to this theme today. Yes, Job got back so much of what he had lost, but I wouldn't blame him if in the moments right before that, he felt what we've been discussing, the weariness of having to start over again. After all, Job had had a long life raising his children, and now he's going back to the diaper stage. Job had worked hard to build his wealth, and now he's starting from nothing. Job could have easily thought about the years and years and years he had invested, the resources he had poured out, the energy and emotions he had expended to get to where he was before it was all taken away. And to think about doing it all again could have been daunting. What's interesting is that's not reflected in this chapter. There's no indication that he had a negative mindset. 
There's also no indication that he didn't have a negative mindset. After all, he was a human with human emotions. But what we can know is that regardless of how he felt, whether he was fully confident in God's provision or working through the weariness of going through it all again, he had come to a place of knowing God so deeply that he was going to choose to trust him no matter what he did. In other words, Job very well might have felt the burden of having to raise more kids and build more business, but even so, he had resolved to live for, honor, and trust the God who had met him in his suffering. When we're hit with hardship, sometimes God does a restoration like we see for Job. And sometimes what is lost isn't restored. And there are a myriad of reasons why either scenario could happen. But the reality woven through each is that God is God and God is good. And as long as our energy is expended on holding onto what we don't wanna lose or dreading on what has to be rebuilt, we can't actually live into the invitation and call to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And in a way that's okay, because God is aware that losing is difficult for us. Rebuilding is daunting. And grasping who God is, is beyond our capacity. Now, fortunately, Jesus tells us that he sent a helper to not only help us to understand the realities that may seem like foolishness to us, but to help us to step forward, even if our hearts, souls, and minds aren't quite there. Starting over can seem painful, but we're not starting over alone, and we're not starting over aimless. When God invites us to stand up and step again, he's doing so knowing that he's set our path straight to something abundantly more than we could have asked for or imagined. That what was lost won't match what he has in store, and what we expend to get to where he's inviting us will be worth every moment. So if like Jonathan, you feel like you are having to start again, be encouraged that God is with you and that something beautifully amazing is right around the corner. So get up and take that step. And as you do, ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com slash revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money. 
but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, where you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?